Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Now you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to we want to come to you this morning, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to understand your word, Lord, that uh, we cannot comprehend this, Lord, from a human perspective, Lord, uh, but we must comprehend it, Lord, from a spiritual perspective. And we can only do that if you would illuminate it to our hearts and our minds that you would reveal your word to us, Lord, that we might comprehend your word about yourself. So, Lord, help us to do that. Speak to our hearts and speak to our, our lives, Lord, this morning. Transform our thinking and transform our lives. We might live for you in a way that is honourable and worthy. And so, Lord, we commit our time to you now. I commit the preaching of your word to you now, Lord, and ask that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You know, there's a, there's a trend in Christianity today that is deeply troubling. And that is the trend which seeks for something more. The idea that being in Christ is not enough. That it's insufficient. That Christ alone just doesn't make sense. People talk of getting more of Christ and more of the Holy Spirit and, and more of his power. They kind of view the resources of Christ as a chemist's prescription doled out one dose at a time. Others think you must qualify to receive them by a particular ritual that you perform. But if you do something or have something performed on you, then you will receive something. I talked to a person once who said they had searched for everything. Searched for everything that they could get because they wanted to get all of Jesus. Unfortunately, what this implies is that people don't get all of Jesus when they get saved. Now, is that good teaching or is it bad teaching? Let me say it's not biblical teaching. Do we need more of God, more of Jesus and more of the Holy Spirit or do we receive everything in salvation at our conversion? Does God have all of us? 
And do we have all of Him? I believe God says something about that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 answers that question for us. Where Peter says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you see it in your Bible? Therefore, you lack nothing of God, and He lacks nothing of you. The Bible's view of the doctrine of salvation is that salvation grants the believer everything in Christ. There's no need to search for something more. A search like that undermines the Bible's teaching of salvation and it contradicts what Jesus said just before he died. To the less die, which is best translated, it is completed, it is finished, it is fulfilled. Therefore, to seek for something more indicates that something is missing. Are you missing something in your salvation? If you are seeking for something more, maybe it's because something is missing. Jesus fulfilled it. So the seek for something more might indicate to you that something is missing in your salvation. Therefore, Jesus only made it possible that you could be saved, but not effectual to actually save you unless you did something. Therefore, you might have the mindset that it's up to you to achieve what Jesus couldn't fully achieve when he died on the cross. And thus a question must be posed. The question is this, is Christ enough? Is he enough? Is he enough for you? You sold out on that, that Christ is absolutely enough, that there's nothing more you need to add to the equation. Known as a letter to the Colossians, Paul wrote to remind the believers at Colossae of their sufficiency in Christ. In chapter 1, he said that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the, the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or even principalities, or even powers. 
He says, all things were created by him. And they were created for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist or hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Then it says, For it pleased the Father that in him, that's in Christ, should all fullness dwell. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that Christ is everything. He is the Redeemer. He is the forgiver of our sins through his blood. In fact, he is the image of God. He is the firstborn, or rather we should say, he is the supreme chief over all creation. He is the creator of all things, and by him all things consist or hold together. Someone, we were talking about this the other day, about Louis Giglio and, and one of his sermons when he talked about a, a protein which is found in humans and animal cells. And we all have this protein, it's called laminin. And uh, apparently it's necessary to the life of a person, otherwise the cells in our bodies would somehow collapse. And then you would not exist. And so this laminin holds the cells together. That's what it looks like. Holds all things together. That's laminin, apparently. You thought that laminin resembles a cross? You're right. Resembles a cross. He holds all things together. Titalestai, it is finished, it is done, it is completed. There is nothing for you to do for your salvation. Therefore, don't let anything rob you of the joy, the hope, the comfort the assurance, the power, the life that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. No, there are many things which potentially rob us, aren't there? There are many things which potentially rob us of what we have in Christ by selling us the idea that Christ's work has made it possible to be saved, but not effectual. It's ineffective. And that we must continue to work for our salvation. Therefore, many Christians are banking on their good works and deeds to guarantee them their inheritance. That's the way the world operates. That's the way religion operates. 
like a child left when a child is left with an inheritance because they have pleased their parent in various ways they've honored their parents in various ways they've done good things on in the name of their parents and so they they're given an inheritance their their names are left in the will but if that child has been unruly, rebellious, and ignorant of their parents, the chances of receiving an inheritance are very unlikely. See, the mindset of most people is this. If you run a race and you come first, you expect to get the prize. You're entitled to the prize because you ran the race, you did the hard work, and you finished first. So you expect to get the prize for coming first. If you work hard all week, from Monday to Friday or even Saturday, if you're really, really a hard worker, you do lots of overtime, and you honour your boss, at the end of the working week you would expect to be rewarded for your effort. That's how the world thinks. That's how we think, right? Remember Jesus' parable? Really smashed that, didn't it? When he talked about the workers in the field, in the vineyard, and those who came late were given the same reward, the same wage. And so Jesus just smashed that theory. But that's how we think. If you do the hard work all week, you expect to be rewarded for your effort. And so the unregenerate mind and sometimes even the regenerate mind cannot comprehend that at one's conversion when they are made alive, when they are born again, they receive everything in Christ, that they had not worked for it, that they had not even asked for it. And this can be clearly seen in Luke 23, 43 with the salvation of the criminal on the cross crucified beside Jesus that man had earned nothing except the punishment which was brutally delivered to him for the crime that he had committed with nowhere to go and unable to do a thing except plead with Christ for his salvation that man was promised paradise. When Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He'd done nothing to earn it. Was Christ enough for that man? So as we come to our passage this morning, I, I begin with a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 8 begins with an imperative warning. See to it. It's the Greek word blepo. 
And so this word is like the entrance alarm. You know, you, some of these delis and other shops, they when you walk through the door, there's a ding, ding. <laughs> when you walk out, a ding, ding. And then, you you know, you've got little children with you. They like to stand in the doorway so they can hear the ding, 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 ding. <laughs> but it's there to warn the proprietor of the, the shop that someone's come in and they need to be alert. Or you might think of a, a sonar detector, a radar detector on a battleship which picks up any enemy in the area and, and, and warns the captain of imminent danger and then affords him the opportunity to prepare to defend the ship. The same is expected of the church. The same was expected of the Colossians. See to it. Bleepo. Be alert here. Be on guard here. Beware. It's expected of the church. The, the sonar detector should be monitored constantly so as to detect the enemy who would love to minimize Christ who would love you to believe that Christ is not enough, who would love you to go on being a religious person, thinking you can do it in your strength. That's what the enemy would love, to bring Christ down to your level and you up to his. Be on the alert. Blipo, blipo. Watch out for the enemy because he is tricky. He knows you and me. He knows we are fallen people. And he knows we are easily tempted and led astray given the opportunity. But thankfully, Matthew 24 gives us a word of encouragement, doesn't it? Turn to Matthew 24. I think it's verse 24. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders as to mislead, if possible, who? Even the elect, if possible. In other words, the elect can't be led astray. Why? Because God has all of you. <laughs> Isn't that encouraging? God has all of you. If he hasn't got all of you, you don't have all of him. In fact, you might not have him if he hasn't got you. And so he has you, you have him. The... Um, <laughs> We're looking at just the other night, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is really, really awesome and really encouraging. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about building uh, on the foundation. You know, if you're going to build with gold, with silver, with precious stones, hay or straw, 
be careful because it's all going to be burned up. Have you ever seen a house that's been totally destroyed by fire? What's left standing when it gets totally destroyed by fire? What is untouched? The foundation slab still there. And that's what Paul is talking about. You got the right foundation? If you got the wrong foundation, guess what? It'll be like building your house on sand. And great was its fall. But build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because remember those guys there, they were saying, Oh, no, no, we we're for Apollos, you know, we we just we want Apollos to be our pastor. You know, he, he's really done well for us and treated us well, so he's the man. Or the others were saying, no, we want Cephas. He's the man. And, and some were saying, Christ. Who was right? Christ. Christ. It's just a foolish thing for you know, carnal minds to get a hold of that and elevate pastors to a position that is only for Christ. It's only there for Christ. We must be careful with that. We want to be Christ-exalting people, not exalting people, people. Christ-exalting people. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right at the end here, it says, and you belong to Christ. There's the foundation. And Christ belongs to God. Amen. So the Apostle Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive. No one comes along and tries to minimize Christ by making you think that he's not enough. See to it that no one takes you captive or, or that no one robs you of the joy or strength or comfort and insurance and, and, and power which you have in Christ. That word captive comes from a word which means to plunder or to rob or to defraud. And so the apostle's warning is quite clear. See to it that no one robs you and no one plunders you that no one defrauds you of what you have in Christ. And we do well here to ask, well, who are these robbers? What do they look like? You want to know what the robbers look like, don't you, before they try to come in and rob you? Let me tell you, first of all, they do not exalt Christ. They come in not, not pointing you to Jesus Christ alone. That's how you will know them. I say, oh yeah, Jesus. But something else. Christ and something else. That's how you will know them. They might use his name every now and again and say some nice things about him. But then they will get you to turn away from him and look elsewhere. So these robbers, well, from our text, they were people advocating that a person needed Christ 
plus other things to be elevated to the true spiritual plane. They would have suggested that one could be assured of their true salvation by trusting in their own merits. Yes, Christ has saved you, but it stops there. Now it's up to you. And so they, they would have suggested that one could be assured of their true salvation by trusting in their own merits and by performing certain rituals or certain things. Here's some of what those people proposed. In verse 8, they, they said, Christ plus philosophy. They added vain human wisdom to the reality of Christ. Now that word philosophy comes from two Greek words and it means lovers of wisdom. Lovers of wisdom. And so the problem for the Colossians was that there were certain people robbing what they had solely in Christ by taking their minds captive with plausible ideas and plausible things. Maybe even talked about Christ but turned them away to trust in other things. So that was their problem. Certain people were robbing what they had solely in Christ, taking their minds captive with plausible ideas, things which sounded reasonable but minimized the work and the person of Jesus Christ. You know, that can be similar to what we know today as liberalism. Liberal theology where, where Christ is good to make salvation possible, but then there is a way that a man or woman can go whereby they can be relevant to their cultural context and where there is no external authority, i.e. the word. That simply means truth can be subjective. It's what I think it says. It's what I think it means. And yes, I might read my Bible, but I'm going to rip that out of its context and make it suit what I think the truth means. It's liberalism. By Christ is good to make salvation possible, but there is a way that a man or woman can go whereby they can be relevant to their cultural context, whereby they're they are not guided by any external authority. They are the authority. The Bible has some wonderful things to say, they would say, but it's irrelevant to the current context. This is full of some really good stories. It's not actually God speaking to me. It's not God's word to me, as if God were just throwing it out of his mouth. How do you view the Bible? Do you see the Bible as just a, a book? And that's okay, because it, it is a book. You put it in the hands of a, an unspiritual person, and it's just a book. There's no life to it. It's not made alive to you. 
The, the truth is not revealed to you. It continues to be a mystery hidden to you unless God illuminates it or God reveals it to you supernaturally. How do you view the Bible? You see it as God's word speaking to you, telling you about him. That's how we want to see it. That's God speaking to us through these scriptures. Telling us all about him. So liberal theology doesn't get that. They come to it as an academic exercise. And when it doesn't agree with what they believe, they squash it and make it say what it doesn't. And, and that's what these people at Colossae were faced with. They were faced with people there who were trying to minimize Christ. So they said Christ plus philosophy. Paul warned the Colossians of that era saying, Beware, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy in vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the basic principles of the world, and not after Christ. Beware when they come to you and they minimize Jesus. And they minimize his saving work and say, yes, that was great, but now. And Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, Ketelestai, it is finished. That's perfect tense. It's done. It doesn't need to be repeated. He completed it. It's finished. The work is done. It's over. There is no more need to work because he did it all and he completed it and fulfilled it and perfected it. Christ is sufficient. They also propose Christ plus legalism. There's one thing I, I, I can't stand. It's legalism. I can't stand liberalism and I can't stand legalism. They are both very nasty words. They are not, they are not biblical words. They are the, you know, in the positive. Paul said, Let no man therefore judge you in food or in drink or in respect of a feast or of the new moon or of a Sabbath day. Verse 16. The Apostle Paul here was telling the Colossians not to allow anyone to elevate their spirituality on the basis of keeping religious rituals or traditions. We do that, don't we? We can do that, don't we? We can make things that are meant to be helpful to us in, in the church a ritual and a tradition and it loses its power. You know, 
I was at the Church of Christ and we had changed the stage around to make it more, not only convenient, but to make it look better. Because they had this big, ugly little stage just over there somewhere. It just didn't look right. Every time I'd come into this, the building, I just looked at it and I just thought, that's wrong. That is wrong. But we prayed and we trusted the Lord and we gave people an opportunity to look at our plans and our design to say, this is what we want to do with it. We want to change it around. We want, we want to have a lower stage. We want it so it's safer because we had the communion table up on the stage. And guess, guess what was happening? The ladies were coming in doing the communion and they, a couple of them fell off the stage. I mean, I'm talking a stage higher than this stage. And they got hurt. And so, so to solve the problem, somebody came up with a great bright idea to put a balustrade around, a big steel chunky balustrade around it. It looked even more uglier. <laughs> so I came up with the elders. We came up with a plan. Let's change it. We're growing as a church and we need more space to put more chairs in. And, and so we need to do something here. And we did. We changed. Well, we put a plan out, gave people opportunity to, to you know, um, talk about it, to, to ask questions about it or to object to it. Nobody said a word. Nobody came to me. Nobody came to the elders. You would think that that meant everybody was in agreement. It was six months we gave people. So the day came where we said we're going to be doing this. We're down at the, the church. We got some young guys involved. They cut up the stage and uh, we started working on the new stage. Ding, 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 ding. I've objected to that and I don't want you to touch that stage. <laughs> Too late. It's cut up. What do you do? We're, we're not welders. We can't put it back together. <laughs> it's already been cut up. The next day worried me. I was very worried and concerned that, you know, that people just didn't say anything. That they kept it to themselves and they were you know, just broiling up inside. It comes Sunday morning, I was going to cop it. I get to church that morning and I was just very worried, very anxious, praying in my heart, you know, Lord, protect me here. And you know, every person I greeted at the door said, wow, this is great. Why didn't we do this before? It's like encouraging me. They had made an object of no spiritual value as something valuable to their spiritual life. We had a problem with the communion table because the communion table wasn't going to go on the stage anymore. And it caused more problems for a few people, not for everyone. And others got it. There's no salvation in the table. The salvation is in Christ. The joy I have is not found in a piece of wood, but it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what people worship? Who people worship? You take it away. And you see what happens when their God gets taken away. When their God is crucified, you will see exactly who people worship. And that's what I saw. I saw people worshipping a table 
and not Christ. Do you get what I'm saying here? Because for them, Christ was not enough. For them, Christ is not, it was not enough. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? If I were to take this table out of this room and move it somewhere else, would you get very angry and upset because your God had been taken away? Not that I would do that. <laughs> I just want you to think here. What is your God? Who is your God? And if it's not Jesus, then take it away. Get it out of your lives because it brings you no true satisfaction and joy. It is not sufficient for your salvation. I mean, this legalism stuff, you know, you just think of the Pharisees. And, and we're, we're, we can be like the Pharisees where we can be prone to hand rules on people and expectations on people that we might even be able to fulfill. You know, most legalistic people actually can keep the rules. And then there's an expectation for others to keep the rules too. The problem with that is they're not looking to Christ. Because if they had looked to Christ, they would realize they fall way short. <laughs> they fall way short. And that should be humbling. That should bring a person down on their knees and ask for forgiveness. That they should hang rules on people. But Christ doesn't hang on people. That's legalism, folks. It is ugly. It is something that you should despise. And if you're doing it, you should pray that the Lord would take it from you. Because it brings no joy in Christ to you. And they were also proposing Christ plus mysticism. In Colossians 2.18, and so Paul said, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions, lifeless notions. You know, people today believe that Christ is not enough, that some heavenly vision or spill-binding experience is necessary for salvation and sanctification to be real. Some believe that if they have an out-of-this-world experience, then they are truly spiritual people. That if they speak with tongues, then they are truly saved. Depends what we mean by tongues. You see, I believe you can speak in tongues. I've spoken in tongues. I've, I've preached to a Chinese congregation in English. They didn't understand a word I was saying. But I had an interpreter there interpreting what I was saying. That's biblical. And I was preaching the gospel. So I believe in tongues. But 
the right tongue, the tongue that seeks to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Remember there was a, the idea in, in, in the church at Corinth for the unsaved, for the unbeliever. Well, what happens if an unbeliever comes in and you're just speaking this unintelligible language, uh, you know, this ecstatic language, what are they going to think? You belong in the nuthouse. <laughs> Maybe you do. But imagine if you were preaching and they could hear it in their own language and they could comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that bring glory to God? So people believe today that you need some kind of out-of-the-world experience and then they are truly spiritual people. They are truly saved. Or, or if they have visions or are able to pronounce prophetic words, then they are anointed by God. Let me say, I don't think it's impossible for God to give you a vision, give you some kind of a vision, but that is not the norm, and that is not something to boast about. That is between you and the Lord. That does not determine the truth of Scripture or confirm the truth of Scripture. The Word of God is the Word of God. You know? But if you have had some kind of out-of-the-world experience, and I know people who have, but they don't talk about it a lot. They share it with me. Somebody here shared about their, their grandmother, Saul, shared about his grandmother who, who had a dream. As clear as day, she saw Jesus. And, and Jesus had a lamp in his hand. She asked Jesus, she, asked, she didn't know it was Jesus. She knew he must have been some kind of master or Lord because he just looked amazingly different than anyone else she'd ever seen. She asked him, Lord, where are you going with that lamp in your hand? He said, I'm going to burn the people who don't follow me. He said, Lord, are you going to burn me too? He said, do you follow me? She woke up from her dream. First thing she did was seek a pastor out to tell her about her dream. The pastor shared the gospel. She came to faith. You hear about stories of people over in the Middle East who had dreams in, in refugee camps, and it's amazing the number of uh, uh, you know, Middle Eastern refugees who've come to faith because they had a dream. And in the dream, many of them say the same thing. A man in my dream told me I needed to go and see that man, that white man, that Westerner man, and ask him what my dream means. He said, go and ask him to get that book. And so they go to this man who happens to be a missionary. They ask him for the book, hands him the Bible, and shows them the gospel, and they come to faith. So I believe God can do some out-of-this-world stuff. We don't limit our God. You can't limit our God. He is greater than us. He is infinitely greater. But we don't make those things the norm. This is the norm. We have the sure word of God, according to Peter, that we can trust when we don't understand those things. 
according to verse 18, those things, visions that are just, people get carried away with, carried away with ecstatic language and all of that, it's just false humility and pride. Why? Because in most cases they are being used as a means to puff oneself up. They are being used to, to, to maximize the person's authority and therefore to minimize God's authority found in his word. And you might immediately think of the charismatics, right? You might think of the charismatics, which unfortunately is where much of the stuff can be found. But please don't for one minute assume that non-charismatic people don't think like this. I've heard some people say some crazy things who weren't charismatic people. In fact, that, that term, charismatic, it's unfortunate that we sort of associated it to a particular group of people who are a bit frenzied in their, you know, in, in their Christianity and, and that I'm actually charismatic. You've been saved by the grace of God. You are a charismatic person. If you understand what the terminology means. It means charismatic, grace performed. It's the grace of God in us and we are doing what we're doing by the grace of God. That's how you want to understand the term charismatic. It's a bit unfortunate that it's been given, you know, to the, they've got the credit of having that terminology, but we're all charismatic. If you are a Christian here, say, saved by the grace of God, you are actually charismatic because you have the grace of God. Peter prays for, her, for the people in 1 Peter. He says that may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's like just all the time, just getting it all the time. Why? So that you can do the Lord calls you to do. And so, uh, you have those kinds of experiences. Just be careful. But don't, you know, don't put down our, our charismatic brothers and sisters too soon because even those of us who are non-charismatic can come up with some really weird things that aren't biblical. And also, I'm not talking about lively worship. You know, I've had this before where the worship's been lively and people have been praising God and, and then they're called charismatic. <laughs> have you seen that? They might raise their hands because they're responding and ascribing to God the glory in their hearts and they're called charismatic. Wow, that is crazy. Have you ever done that? looked at someone here in our congregation and see them raising their hands and thought they were charismatic. Well, I guess now that I've said we're all charismatic, you're right. <laughs> but have you read the Bible? And have you read the Psalms? And have you read how when they worshipped, they were raising their hands? They were clapping their hands. Psalm 96, you want to read that? Even the fields, the grass in the fields, guess what they were doing? <laughs> Giving praise and glory to God, even the fields were exalting God. 
man, I don't know how you can sing along to some of these songs that we sing in our church and not want to just shout and praise God as that word hits your mind and then gets to your heart. But then I don't expect everyone to do that. And I don't know if I told you about a guy when we were in New Community Church who was very, very stiff, very stiff man. And um, he would, he worked in the oil fields and then in the gas fields and then he would go away for two weeks and then come back for a couple of weeks and then go away for two weeks, two weeks on, two weeks off. And uh, very, very stiff he wore, wore a suit. He was only a young man, younger than me. <laughs> and uh, when we would do, you know, our services and when we would play music and that, he'd just be straight. He wouldn't move. He would sing, but he had a biggest smile on his face as he sung. The biggest smile. He was reading the words and just couldn't help but smile. But that man didn't worship with his hands, with his feet, you know, with his moves and grooves. That man worshipped God with his offering. That man would go away for two weeks and every time he came back, our offering for the next two weeks doubled. And we had a big budget. <clears throat> that man gave and worshipped the Lord with his offering. Wow, we need somebody here like that. I don't care how stiff you are. You know, we welcome you. Uh, but what I'm saying is, you know, you might not be the type who likes to raise their hand or tap their feet or, or you know, feel the music. That's okay too. We don't judge you for that. But we don't judge you if you like to clap your hands and tap your feet. We are not legalists here. We are people whose minds are set on Christ. Your mind is on Christ and you're just frozen. That's okay. You're one of the frozen chosen. <laughs> but if you're one of those ones here this morning and you like to move, it's okay too. You're one of the ecstatic elect. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's not what we're talking about. We're not here to judge you for that. You know, there, there always has been and always will be people who claim either in word or action that Jesus is not enough. I mean, you might be here this morning and you might say to yourself, no, he is enough. And then go away from here and act like he's not enough or think like he's not enough. I want to encourage you this morning that he is enough, that he is enough for you. The work that he has done, was enough. <clears throat> Don't ever think that you have to do something in order to get Christ, in order to be saved. Otherwise, that just nullifies what he's done. Religion says, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and completed, finish, but now it's up to you. No, it's not up to you. See, I believe that 1 Corinthians 3 talks about this, that all those good things, the good works that we've done will be burned up. And that's okay if your foundation is Christ. Your foundation is Christ. What's the point of having all these good works and presenting them to Jesus saying, here Jesus, look at what I've done before the one who did it all. How sad will that be? 
to stand before Jesus who said, it is finished, I've done what was necessary, and then hold out your hands with your deeds and your works and say, there you go. You can add that to your pile. Can you comprehend that with me? Sadly, that's how many people think. That the work of Christ was good for that, but not good enough now. Folks, if you were like the thief on the cross and you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And how would you get there? By your good works, are ye saved? By your good deeds, are ye saved? No, by grace, are you saved? Unmerited favour. No ticks in your boxes. In fact, all your boxes have been crossed. You have not met the standard. You have fallen short. There is no boasting on your behalf or my behalf before the Lord Jesus. And isn't that great comfort to know? That is unless you are perfect. And then you might think you have something to boast about before him. But I want to assure you, you don't. Because he did it all. He has done it all. There's nothing for you to do but to trust him and to live in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called. And so the Apostle Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, that no one robs you of what you have in Christ, that no one plunders the effectual work and person of Jesus Christ from your mind and your heart by substituting it with things which have no salvation or sanctification or kingdom value. And remember Ephesians 4, 8. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men and women. So the Apostle Paul's answer to all of this is summed up in Colossians 2 verses 9 to 10 when he says in him that's in Christ dwells all the fullness all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you get this underline it highlight it circle it in the Bibles and you are complete in him Praise God. You are complete in him. The word in the Greek is pleru. It's in the perfect tense. It's done. It's dusted. Complete. Nothing to add to. Unless you're a religious man or woman here today. Nothing is missing in Christ. We have no reason to search for something more when Christ is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us some time to stop and just to think about the Lord Jesus. 
And we remember how the, the, the scripture says, if any man uh, love not the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. And, and, and we have come to you and, and we've expressed our love for Christ and, and he is our saviour and yet our love is not what it ought to be at times. And, and it's so easy, Lord, to fall into that sin of the Ephesian church and leave our first love, that fiery, warm love, that exhilarating, passionate love and that, that caused us to long to pursue Christ for everything. Well, Lord, forgive your church for the sins of self-centeredness and a man-centered focus and give us back the centrality of Jesus Christ. Well, God, may we, your people, called by your name, redeemed by your blood, may we have the spirit, the attitude, the disposition of wisdom and revelation and the true and the full knowledge of your Son, our Lord Jesus. And may we understand the greatness of the, the, the plan that unfolds, the greatness of the power that is available to us, the greatness of the person who is our friend, our resource, our comforter, our rock, our shelter in the time of storm. And in that understanding, may we pursue the knowledge of Christ so that we may cultivate a love relationship that leads us to deep devotion, the fruit of which is living in confidence and strength and security and joy and peace and hope in Christ. Oh Lord, give us back your church, the love for the unseen Christ. May we be able to say with Peter, whom having not seen, we love. And may he, our Lord Jesus, be the preoccupation of our hearts. We confess Christ is everything. In him is all we need. Give us a heart to pursue the knowledge of him. And this we ask for his glory. Amen.